theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning, theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hi, Dr. Amy. How are you, Dr. Joy? I'm good. Today is a beautiful day, and we're talking about an interesting topic today, dual credit. And I, I say it's interesting because I do like having the conversation, although I'm not a huge proponent of dual credit, not in the way that it's been implemented. So we'll talk about that more, but we're going to talk about dual credit that many people have heard about. If you have a high school student, you know what dual credit is, what dual enrollment is, but I do want to give you some facts and figures about dual credit since we're going to talk about that today, Amy. And it was, wasn't shocking to me, but more than 60% of high school students now earn college credit through dual credit. Did you say 60, 6-0? 6-0%. Is that a large number? Do you, think that's a lot, you feel like that's a large number? And that's just full credit. So that's not AP. They also earn CTE credits because many states have different types of diplomas now, right? So 60. And states on average are saving about $160 million a year because of dual credit. And so one of the things we're going to talk about, like who's saving that money? Of course, we know that families are saving some of that money because they don't have to pay for those courses once the student goes to college, right? Because they have already earned that college credit. So now once that child goes to, that student goes to college, that course is done. It transferred to that college and they don't have to retake it. So that's money saved, especially if they were attending a free public high school, right? But how much money does the state save by doing that? That same student might've been eligible for grants and loans and scholarships that they did not have to apply for when they went to college. So how much money does the state save? So we're going to talk about dual credit because I think it's an interesting subject. There's some pros and there's some cons to dual credit and kind of why was dual credit implemented in the first place? Was it to help families? Was it to help states? We're going to learn more about dual credit. Part of what I'm really interested in is figuring out what the difference between dual credit is versus AP courses. Yeah. We had that, I mean, years ago, yes. I, took a, I took a few AP courses. My daughter got several credit hours taken care of through AP courses, but she never took any dual credit courses. So that's really interesting 
to me. I want to see what that difference is. Right. But all dual credit always existed through AP. So why the extra layer of dual credit? Chris Gloff is an English and media teacher at Crown Point High School in Indiana who has championed dual credit in his district and beyond. And I want to hear straight from Mr. Gloff, straight from Chris, a little bit more about his teaching role. And welcome to the program so you can tell us more about yourself and about what you do in your district. My name is Chris Kaloff. I'm an educator in Northwest Indiana. I'm in my 28th year of teaching. I'm licensed in both secondary science and English. Having never considered becoming an educator in my youth, a fateful phone call from a private school in 1994 forever changed my career pathway. Since then, I've taught music, theater, chemistry, physics, English at multiple levels, speech, and specifically for the last eight years, radio and television. Uh, I currently advise Crown Town Media, which is the radio, TV, film, and media program at Crown Point High School. I sit on the school improvement committee for the high school. I coach the high school JV baseball team, and I, ad- I adjunct education courses at both the undergraduate and graduate levels. So you don't have anything going on at all, do you? That's just this part of my world. I, I, I do other jobs uh, between church and being a dad to two amazing boys, all the stuff that comes with being an adult in this world. Absolutely. And I've known Chris to be that kind of person and always busy. So Chris, we're going to talk about dual credit because I know For you, you were someone, you're a front runner at dual credit. You were one of the first to really acknowledge it and implement it at your school district. Uh, Dr. Amy and I, we were talking earlier is is that I think dual credit has its place. I'm not a huge proponent in dual credit and how it exists now. But before we get into that, can you explain for our listeners what dual credit is in a broad sense? Because we have multiple paths of dual credit like AP, dual credit, dual enrollment. So can you just explain to our listeners, what is dual credit? Well, some people call it dual credit. Some people call it dual enrollment. And I think the simplest way of viewing it for the person who's not in the educational world and maybe not in a school district that has a lot of dual credit offerings or no dual credit offerings is I always look at my students and I say, you are earning two credits in one classroom setting. You're enrolled in a high school course, and at the same time, you're enrolled in a college course, dual credits, and you are earning two credits in that process, one for your high school track and one for your college transcript. And some people struggle with the idea that you have a high school person learning in a college setting and college curriculum, but that's the idea. To use a, a colloquialism, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're earning credit. You're taking this class rather than take it twice, take it once and earn two credits for it. But I'm more familiar with AP courses. I took some myself whenever I was in high school. My daughter received a number of credits 
through AP courses when she was in high school, it served her quite well going into her freshman year of college. What's the difference? So AP is uh, coursework that is created and administered by the college board. And it's something that most of us that have been in education for a long time or that went through school back when we might have in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. And it is universally, globally distributed. And and the curriculum is, is global. It's the same for anybody who takes that course, in theory. And it's, you know, with anything in education, there's always stigma attached, right? So whether you're in a gym class or a choir class or an art class, there's a stigma attached. So there's a stigma attached with dual credit courses and there's a stigma attached with AP courses. Early on in this process, and in some school areas, even today, in some areas of the country, people will say that AP is connected to rigor. It's a college curriculum and it is known for being a very tough course, a challenging course. And at the end of that course, you take a test. So after a year-long preparation of learning and studying and going over the concepts and theories, you are given a one-time test that determines your score. The way we understand it, the way most schools teach it to their kids, if you earn a three out of five, you are probable to earn a credit at a state institution. If you earn a four, you're just about guaranteed and five is perfect. Whereas with dual credit, it's literally like a college class where it's broken into semesters. You might have a midterm and a final exam, or you might have multiple exams along the way and your grade builds up upon that. And there's not just one test at the end of the semester that determines it, but rather the expanse of all your work throughout that semester or year. So I'm one of those people that you just spoke about who feels that there's lots of rigor in AP courses. And as you explained it, earning a three or above, the university then can make a decision if they want to accept that course and give you college credit for that course. And that isn't if different universities have different standards and what level they will accept that dual credit. I want to talk about AP, if we already had a system of dual credit called AP, then why create this new system of dual credit that you described that would allow other students, maybe students that weren't necessarily eligible for AP, to take college credit? I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's one that is based in the philosophy of you, the educator, of the school corporation and the state that you teach in. I can talk about it in the perspective of two states, Indiana and California. I get to spend a significant amount of time in California every summer, and I get to meet with a lot of interesting school, high school teachers in Southern California. And I remember when we were starting to initiate our dual credit program circa 2009, 2010, when I went to California, And I expect California, in my mind, my perspective is that California is advanced. That's where the college board is housed. They're going to be way ahead of us in terms of this. And so I met with our normal grouping of friends that we normally meet out in Southern California, and they had no idea what dual credit was. They said, well, we have AP, 
but we don't have dual credit. What is that? And we started having this conversation. Well, since then, dual credit has picked up out there. I don't think they're near where we are here in Indiana right now. But I think that it comes down to philosophy. And I think that to a lot of people, what dual credit does is rather than having one overarching curriculum that is created by a institution in on the West Coast, that we would create partnerships with local and state universities and colleges that would focus on the curriculum that was created by those institutions within the realm of the state of Indiana, in our case, and within the needs of the workforce and the students of, of Indiana. Now, somebody might say, well, what if they don't want to study in Indiana? Well, that's a different discussion. And I think what it also does is it creates a bridge from high school to college, more so than AP. AP is, our students kind of view it as this detached alien life force that's out there that nobody can put a face on or a picture. But with dual credit, the professors from our state university, so Indiana or Purdue, whoever we're affiliated with in a particular content area, they meet with our students. The professor who is the lead professor at the university comes in or does a Zoom and explains the course and why the material is been selected for that course. It creates this relationship that I don't think is there, AP. And I think also because of the stigma of AP that only the brightest students or the, the ones that are seeking that rigor will take AP, dual credit is trying to open it up to more students. Can I say all students? That's tricky because there are developmental concerns and there are ability concerns, and skill concerns, and how much skill has the student come to the course with? prior skill and knowledge. All right, so let's talk about, just for a moment, the dichotomy between these two systems of dual credit. Who in your class a candidate for dual credit versus a student being a candidate for AP? Again, you know, I feel like I'm walking into a trap because it would be easy <laughs> for me to go. like I'm not that strong proponent of dual credit. And there's, you know what, and, and I say that, but mm -hmm. I do think that dual credit has its place. And I'll, and I'll be completely honest with you as we go through some of these questions. And you're not walking into a trap. I think that our listeners really, really, this is important for our listeners. And many parents and students have questions and they have these type of questions. But I think where I get challenged is when students are earning associate's degrees with dual credit. And we'll talk about that later, but no, you're not walking into a trap. I think this is very good information for our parents because they're grappling with this. Should my child take dual credit? Should they take AP credit? What really is dual credit? So I think this is all very helpful. And so when you have that student as a teacher or your child, and you're trying to make that decision, is my child a better candidate for dual credit? Or is my child a better candidate for AP? And, I, and you know, I'm joking about the trap, but literally this is a conversation we have in our house. I have a 16-year-old and he, he does well in school and could certainly take all the AP courses and go that route. We try not to get involved in the conversation 
with our son. That's the relationship we have in our family. I, I, I wouldn't advise that for everyone, but that's the relationship we have. And, and, and his counselors and advisors and his teachers who in our school system then recommend students for the next level and the next level and the next level. I think that, again, based on the stigma, only the smartest and the brightest are in these AP courses. The brightest or those that have a specific history in education and, and their, their, their tracking is that they're you know 4.0 and above and those are going to be our AP students. But I don't see it as that anymore. I see it as everything should be geared towards what is your current end goal and where are you going to study and what are you going to study and what is going to help you get to that place, maybe not as quickly, but as smooth and with the skills that you need as possible. So as a teacher, because you also you teach dual credit mm -hmm. and you're using the college curriculum and you're qualified to do that because you have uh, earned master's degree. So you have the same credentials as a college professor. And so you're teaching this curriculum in your classroom. Are there only dual credit students in your classroom? No, I mean, you, that's the other thing. You know, we're teaching this class the curriculum is designed by the partnering institution. And then you have somebody who decides to take the class, but only earn one part of the credit, which is the high school credit. And they elect to do that. And that was tricky at first. The other thing is that students come into it thinking it's going to be one thing and it's not. And I think we could get into this discussion about developmental concerns. Do these students understand everything that is being asked of them uh, when they come into a dual credit class, that they're being asked to take it as a college level student? And, and there's, a, again, there's that philosophy, right? Do we believe that high school students are developed in their maturity and their cognitive abilities and their responsibility to fulfill a college level class? To me, when I first started this, I thought, well, no, that's what college is for because they're developmentally ready to do those things. And I felt like the initial stabs at dual credit was a watered down course. It was basically the high school course with a couple of the university principles and standards that we felt that, that we as high school teachers were adapting into the curriculum and then could make it work. My question is about the rigor. You mentioned the word rigor earlier, and I really wanted to latch onto that. How do you ensure the rigor of a dual credit course? Well, now I think it, it's been modified so much since 2009, 2010, 2008. The, the universities quickly stepped in and said, wait a minute, this isn't the same course we're teaching here. And, and that was a credit to the universities sending someone over and monitoring what was going on and doing dual syllabi. So the professor was assessing what was going on in the classroom and I was assessing what was going on in the classroom and we weren't looking at each other. And at the end we came together and we looked at the assessment and not only in my case, but a lot of my peers, we were grading easier. We were assessing the students with a, with a softer brush. And I don't think we were guaranteeing the rigor at that point, but certain 
practices have since been implemented that not only do you have to have your, do you have to be accredited through the HLC and, and have a master's in the content area or a master's plus hours in the content area, 18 credit hours in the content area. But now you have to attend a three-day conference at the university and you sit in with their lead professors and with professors who teach on campus. And we go through all the practices, practices and then we watch video of students doing the work and we assess it side by side and say, what was their justification for the assessment and what was our justification in comparing. And there's a, a much more watchful eye that we are doing what they're doing at IU and at Purdue. You and know, I remember those days, Chris, and, and perhaps I'm stuck in those times, which contributes to how I feel, because I can remember the time where students would earn dual credit from Purdue and not be able to get accepted into Purdue once they graduated because of their ACT score or SAT score. So it had those type of challenges early on. So I'm happy to hear that many of those challenges have been addressed. You know, that there's been observations, the assessments have changed to truly make it a college course for these students. So here, here's another thing that I also ponder, and I kind of wonder why does dual credit exist? Why did it exist? If AP already existed, dual enrollment already existed, why dual credit? And so one of the things that I read was that on average, the average state saves around 160 million, you know, some states a lot more than that, $300 million a year on dual credit because families and families don't have to spend the money, right? You've already earned, if I go to a public high school and I've earned dual credit, I already have those credits. I have that credit in English, or I have that credit in math or biology, and it's going to translate to college credit. So I don't have to take that three credit hour course. So that saved me thousands of dollars for every dual credit course that I have. So it saves families money. And I know that that's one advantage of dual credit, but also I looked at it as it's saving the state and the federal government a lot of money because that's also credit that I don't have to get scholarship for or Pell grant for or MAP grant for, and the government does not have to pay. You know, they already paid you and your salary as a high school teacher, and now they don't have to repeat that again when they get to college. So some of it is, is it designed for the state to save money? Is it designed for the families to save money? So I just ponder about why it was created in the first place, but maybe you can talk about some more advantages of dual credit and maybe even some disadvantages of dual credit. What should parents consider? The advantages are, are pretty self-explanatory in, in some extent in that if a student is earning credit for college at a reduced cost, and that's maybe something that parents need to be reminded of, that if you're at a school in which the cost is $350 or $400 a credit hour, and it's a three credit hour course, it's $900 to $1,000 for that course. 
I teach a dual credit course that is $25 a credit hour. So three credit hours would be $75. So there's a financial savings there. And that course, if they score, if they, you know, whatever it is, it transfers right on to Indiana University. But students and parents have got to remember that they are starting their college transcript with their first dual credit class. So if they don't do well in that course, and heaven forbid they score a C or a D or an F, or they're an A student and they score a B, and you know how that just rips right through those A students, they're starting with a college transcript with that B on that transcript. Not that the grades should always matter, you know, the learning should be the most important part, but we, we all know the competitive nature of our society and what people are doing and they're, they're attempting to get scholarships and they're hoping to go on to graduate school or law school or, and, and, and that's a competitive world. And these things that they're doing sophomore or junior year of high school can have a significant effect on what's something might happen three, four, five years into the future. So you definitely want to be considering that. And then the other thing I always think about is, yes, listen, they may have learned the material, right? They learn it junior year and they get an A in that course, but they get to college and by their second year, they're going to take a course that might build upon that course. Well, as humans, we don't log on to that stuff forever if we're not practicing it regularly. So there's a good chance that that student could have done all that work, done really well in school and earned that college credit and then gets to the university of their choice and gets to a point where they have to take that class that's going to build upon that information and has lost, not retained some of that information because it's not been in constant practice. And they don't do well in the other course and then realize they just say, well, I got to go back and just take it again. Is that a plus or a minus? Anytime I think you're having to redo what you did and there's a cost involved in it, that's a tricky concept. I mean, if the end goal is that I, I want to know this so well that whatever I do in my career pathway, I'm going to be really good at it, then great. Whatever it takes, let's, let's do that. But that's not the way our society works. It's about getting from this phase to the next phase to the next phase, move on, move on. And I think something gets lost in that, could get lost in that process. You make some excellent points about that, that possibility of students having to retake some material because of that lost information. It's, <laughs> it'd be nice if I could hold on to some information from one day to the next, much less a few years later. We are talking to Chris Gloff, who teaches, coaches, is an advocate and educator in Northwest Indiana and is talking to us today about dual credit. I have a question about the types of courses. In a typical campus that is really driven to offer dual credit courses, what types of courses are offered as dual credit? It's all over the place. I mean, we have dual credit courses in construction technology. All our core classes, we have pre- dual credit, pre-AP English. We have dual credit math courses, chemistry, physics. We have an early childhood education program and there's dual credit educational psychology. I teach dual credit speech. There's dual credit 
radio and television, which is a practicum. So our students who go into broadcast can earn their credits for practicum. And all of our students who have taken that course and gone on to college and studying radio and TV broadcast journalism, they've earned six credit hours. So we can, they can do it over two years. They can do three credit hours their junior year and three credit hours their senior year. And they've earned six credit hours towards the radio and TV degree. It's all over the place, like a school that's really driven to serve the community and offer opportunities. And again, remember, nobody has to take these classes. Nobody has to take an AP course. Nobody has to take a dual credit class. They're there as an option for better or for worse. And sometimes I fear for worse. Education has become a smorgasbord. It's a buffet line. We sometimes get fooled into thinking that more is more. If we offer more, there's greater opportunities, there's greater advantages. My concern is what are we giving up along the way? If, if it's rigor, then that's a problem for me. If it's socio-emotional development, strong, healthy socio-emotional development because we're stressing kids out because they aren't developmentally ready. And this is something, again, that I look at my own child with and I say, you need to do what you need to do. If you want advice from me as a teacher and as your dad, I'll give you the best advice that I think I can give you that fits your circumstances. But I don't ever want to see it be at the expense of someone's mental health because these are fragile young people that we sometimes are eluded into thinking that they're young adults and that they're not. They're, they're, they're vulnerable old children. I would prefer to always make sure that at the high school level, we look at them as old children than young adults, because the world is a fragile place. And I certainly wouldn't want to put this student onto a course if they didn't have a strong mental and social emotional foundation to go off. Because we all know if we have that, right, we can just about go out and do anything we want. But we can be the smartest people in the world. And if we don't have a strong social emotional foundation, we're in trouble. Right. And I hear that coming from you, not only as an educator, but I hear that coming from you as a parent. So mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I feel you on that. And, you know, I struggle with that too. You talked about being developmental ready. It's not just about being academic ready. You have to be developmental ready. And so I often wonder, well, what's the purpose of high school? What's the purpose of college? And more is not necessarily better. My daughter graduated from high school at 16 and she graduated from college at 19. And people are normally awed about that. As a matter of fact, when she graduated, the news media was there. She graduated with the oldest and the youngest person that had graduated that year. But that did not benefit her at all. Graduating early did not benefit her. And she's an educator. And I tell you, being a 19-year-old sixth grade teacher did not fare well. And it took a couple of years before she became a dynamic teacher, you know, because of that developmental process, she missed out on a lot of opportunities in college because she wasn't old enough, because she wasn't developmentally ready. So there's more, and especially for students that get associate's degrees while they're in high school, it's not always better because there is that developmental aspect to that. And sometimes what it forces you to do 
at the end of that two years, because I get if I get my associate's degree from a dual credit in high school, now I only have two years of college left. It forces me now to get a loan to get a master's degree. So now I'm paying more for my college education because I need to do something with those extra two years because who in the world is going to hire me? <laughs> so I, I see that it has its advantages, especially where parents can save money. I just think in, in terms of moderation. So I, I have two questions for you, kind of unrelated. Since we're talking about developmentally and dual credit, what are some of the best practices that you have learned in implementing dual credit? Well, I think we have to remember that the way we teach, the pedagogy of teaching secondary students is different than the pedagogy of teaching college students. And the technique and the best practices are geared differently. And so, but the material is the same. Okay, so now we're, we're, we have two ways that we would teach this material, two different levels, developmental levels that we're using, but the material is still the same. My philosophy is that at the secondary level, learning has got to be, dare I say fun, that's tricky, but I'm going to say fun. It needs to have a buy-in to it to answer the age-old question, when are we ever going to use this? And so I've got to always make sure that I'm applying it to something that they can see where this is going to serve them. And I think the best practices at the high school level for implementing and teaching dual credit material is remembering that we're teaching a different developmental level a higher level of information, but the methodologies that we use should be the same methodologies that we use when teaching a general ed classroom at the high school level. So what do I mean by that? So we go down to IU and we have a conference and incredibly brilliant professors, well-respected professors come up and give a demonstration on how they would do a particular lesson. And I'm sitting there watching it going, there's no way this flies in my classroom. There's just no way that it does. But while I'm sitting there, I'm thinking of Project Chris strategies. I'm thinking of Marzano strategies that I can use that either through Venn diagrams or through association or whatever the case might be. And then my own particular style, which is, you know, anybody who's been in my classroom, I'm a goofball, I'm goofy cloth. And so I find ways to get that little smile and to get that little twinkle that what we're doing is fun, it serves a purpose, and it's going to serve me whether I choose this career pathway or I can use it some way in life. And I think that's critical is it's so easy to go to, to, to our conferences and to connect with our university liaisons and they say, you know, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. But it's not going to work at this developmental level. If, if we want to be truly successful in getting the information across and having them retain it, we have to remember that the pedagogy we've been trained in and that's been effective for us, we've got to figure out a way to use that to teach the material that they are asking us to teach with the same rigor. Everybody kind of loses sense that, well, if it's rigor, it's, it's, it must not be fun. It must be really hard work. Well, it could be really hard work, but it can't be fun. Some of the hardest things I've done in my life, physically, job-wise, I still found ways to make fun. It's, it's about who you're with and the experience and the environment. 
I think more than ever, you know, I felt like I said socio emotional a number of times today, but our society is in great need of being aware of the socio emotional state of our students and making sure that we are not losing them in an attempt to to create rigor and to make sure that they are being pushed. I think we're outside the zone of proximal development when it comes to rigor these days. Like Vyofsky would would want us in that zone. And now rigor seems to mean that we're not just outside that comfort zone. We're way out here. Educational theory and philosophy has been around a long time and has served us really well that some of those things that are key and central to our work have got to remain there. And so I think it's important not to get caught up into the terminology and what other people are doing, because that's the, that is another thing that I think is a disadvantage of dual credit is that because we are being asked to teach these courses in, in a certain way, and we attend these conferences, we kind of throw creativity out the window and we go, it's just going to be a cookie cutter approach. This is what they want. We've got to do this. And we've got to, no, no, no. They're asking us to retain the level of rigor and to hold them accountable to university standards. But that doesn't mean that we can't use our same methodologies to get that material across. You bring up some great points about rigor can be fun. And that goes for any class at any grade grade level. We can make things complex. And in fact, I believe our students can often be bored and disenchanted with school if they're not challenged and if they're not digging deep into the content and understanding why they're there. I was going to ask maybe how you got in students interested in dual credit to begin with, but really I, I want to take your class. I mean, it sounds like how would it not be fun for students to take advantage of this opportunity but what about teachers? What is the benefit for a teacher who might be interested in teaching dual credit? How do they do it? What is the benefit for them? What's the benefit for the school? Well, and that's a philosophy of the school corporation and the area where you live and whatnot. In our particular area, it is a coup to teach dual credit. And there is a stipend that is associated with teaching dual credit and being HLC certified. And so our jobs in specific content areas are going, if somebody, if there's two people that are interviewing for a job, regardless of whatever that teaching position is for that year, if you are HLC certified and and we're like, okay, this person can teach a dual credit for us, they're going to win out. If everything else is equal, that person's going to win out. And then there are stipends associated with teaching that HLC. And I think the other thing is as educators, we all have different skill sets. Some of us are incredibly gifted in content area knowledge. And some of us are really gifted in connectedness skills and connecting with students who need a connection in this world. But I think there, again, there's always that stigma attached to the teachers that teach the high level courses, the rigorous courses. There's a sense of prestige and pride that goes with it. And I think as an educator, that takes some serious self-assessment. Like, what am I being called to? What are my skills? 
there's a need, there's a real need for those teachers who are going to work with these students. There's extra work. You're, you're communicating your grades to your high school. You're communicating your grades to the university you're connected with. You've got this paperwork that's involved with all these students back and forth, digital yeah. paperwork. I agree. There's a lot of work, Chris. At Governor State University, we're working with school districts. We're actually working with your school district as well to help qualify teachers to become dual credit certified as an accredited, being accredited by Higher Learning Commission, as you mentioned multiple times with HLC. We offer graduate degrees in the evening specifically for teachers, the incumbent workforce, for the teachers to return to school to earn a master's degree. Because again, you must meet the same credentials as that university adjunct in order to be dual credit qualified. Then once you meet that, then the state give you whatever credentials on your license to be able to do that. But we're finding that many schools do not have enough teachers that are dual credit qualified or certified. They work with other universities and maybe they bus the students to the community college or to the local state university so that they can earn dual credit. Both models work, but I'm finding more and more that most schools would prefer to have their own teachers dual credit qualified and teach the dual credit in-house. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we could spend a whole hour talking about another aspect of this that you just brought up, which is does dual credit and the like widen the achievement gap? Because now if we start looking at school districts like Crown Point, who this is a priority to them and they're driven and they have the funds and the means to go out and recruit teachers who are certified and whatnot. Whereas other schools in lower socioeconomic areas in urban areas, maybe in communities that aren't that are considered unsafe, and many teachers do not want to go to those areas because they can financially benefit more from these other areas. And so now we're widening that gap more and more. And that's a topic for a different day. And and again, the positives and the negatives. You know, as a as a teacher. I'm always considering the students in front of me and their needs and how I can best serve them. But I can't tell you that I don't go to bed at night thinking about the students that I don't see every day. Well, that's a reason to have you back. So we can have a whole nother conversation about access to opportunities because that is an issue. For sure. For sure. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot today and I know that our listeners have too. There's a lot of information here and we'll have some links in the show notes for ways to access more information and have it at the ready. And for you teachers out there who want to be dual credit licensed or certified, think about evening program, working on your master's at some place like GSU. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Chris. Same here. I really appreciate the opportunity to be out of the classroom and think about what I'm thinking about regarding education. It was a pleasure to be with you both. And I'm so happy that you're still a scholarly goofball here some 25 years later. (laughs) For sure. For sure. I wouldn't know any other way. The same here. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.